Let us pray together. Gracious God, we thank you that when we gather together as a congregation and your Holy Spirit is present and moving in our midst, that you always have more light and more truth to reveal to us from your Holy Word. And we thank you through Christ through whom we have come to know and love you. Amen. Well, this morning we've arrived in Corinth, the great crossroads city of the ancient world. In the first century, it's already on the way to becoming the largest and the most prosperous city in all of Greece. And if you take out your bulletin and look at the map, you can see that Corinth is perfectly situated right there in the middle of the empire and is perfectly situated, location, 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 perfectly situated to be a passageway for all the trade that's going in all directions in the Roman Empire. If you look to the west, you can see Rome five days away on a good boat across the sparkling seas. And if you look to the, a little bit to the east, you can see Athens 50 miles away, just a two days journey by foot. Corinth sits strategically on what is called an isthmus. It's a hard word to say, but it means a narrow neck of land that connects the Greek mainland in the north with this huge peninsula called the Peloponnese Peninsula to the south. And a toll road in Corinth allows ships to be pulled up out of the gulf on one side of this neck of land, taken with sledges, sometimes logs of wood rolled across these four miles and then plunked back into the gulf on the other side to continue its path forward. This four-mile shortcut allows ships to avoid the 400-mile journey all around that peninsula. Now, Corinth gets even more interesting because high above the city towers the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, staffed, according to ancient historians, by 1,000 prostitutes. And while this is probably an exaggeration, Corinth like Las Vegas today, majors in fast living. To Corinthianize is actually a verb and means to corrupt or to debase another person. You see, Corinth's reputation as a sin city is widely known all across the empire. So apparently what happens in Corinth 
doesn't always stay in Corinth. Now, I invite you to turn in your Bible to our first reading from Acts 18. Acts 18. It's in the year 50 or 51 that Paul, a 45-year-old Jewish teacher and tent maker, arrives in Corinth. Verse 1. Now, I want you to think about this a little bit. To this worldly city with its spectacular temples to every god and emperor, Paul brings his astounding message that the one creator God of the universe has lovingly come to be with us in Jesus Christ, born into the family of a lowly Jewish Jewish carpenter. How's that going to play in Corinth? And through Jesus' life and ministry, his death on a Roman cross, and his astonishing resurrection, we have been rescued from our bondage to sin and death and violence and brought into a reconciled relationship with God. Now imagine walking into Corinth and sharing that message. For his pagan audience... Accepting this message is going to require a profound change of worldview. That there's only one God, not many gods, a pantheon of gods, and that this one God is a God of love rather than a God of capricious violence whose power is made perfect in the seeming weakness of the cross. Friends, it's going to take a while for Paul's listeners to wrap their minds and then their hearts around this message. It might even take 18 months. And they're going to need also to see this message lovingly lived out, incarnated in Paul and his believer friends around him. And so, see the very crucial verse 10. God comes to Paul in a vision and tells him, for the very first time in his life, stay put. Hang in there, Paul, and patiently join what I am already doing in Corinth. God says in this vision, there are many in this city who are my people. What a beautiful vision. There are many in this city who are my people. Now soon after arriving in Corinth, Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila, two Jewish Christians from Rome who quickly become his beloved colleagues and dear friends. 
You know, you just keep on bumping into this in these stories, these close friendships that happen as people serve in mission together. And in verse 12, we learn that this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, have just arrived from Rome after Emperor Claudius' expulsion of all Jews from that city. Now what you have to know is that in ancient times, Jewish rabbis each learn a trade. And Paul's trade is tent making. And what, as I shared with our children, what we're really talking about here is leather working, making sails and curtains and tents and other leather goods. And the beautiful thing is that if you visit Corinth, which my family did 10 years ago, you can still see some of the market stalls where people lived and worked and practiced their trades. And one of the wonderful things is to imagine that as we were in one of these stalls that, wow, this is perhaps where Paul and Priscilla and Aquila worked together for 18 months. Now I want you to notice that in verse 2, Aquila, the husband, is listed in the traditional order before Priscilla, the wife. But then in verses 18 and 26, and two other times in the New Testament, Priscilla gets mentioned first. Now what you have to know is in their male-dominated society, this name order reversal is unheard of. So what's going on? Well, commentators say that it's an indication of the leading role that Priscilla clearly is playing in the early church. And so as we saw last Sunday in Philippi, the Holy Spirit is coming and turning upside down or right side up unjust social norms of the day and empowering women to play crucial roles in the early, early church. Notice I said the early, early church. Now in verse 4, we learn that Paul, as is his custom, first takes his message to his own Jewish community which unlike Philippi last Sunday, has enough people to have a synagogue. Enough Jewish people to have a synagogue. But then when rejected, Paul leaves the synagogue and starts a church right next door. (laughs) Think about that. In the home of a Gentile believer named Titius... Justice. Titius is probably quite wealthy in his home, although it probably doesn't have a ballroom. Has, you had to be here last Sunday. It has enough room 
to accommodate this growing congregation. In what must be a stunning development, Crispus, a leader from the next-door synagogue, then comes next door and joins this new church with his whole family. There's a lot of upheaval, a lot of change happening. And from Paul's two later letters to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we can piece together some absolutely fascinating details about this emerging church. At the start, it's probably much smaller than we might imagine. Probably maybe 50 people. Most of them are Gentiles, and as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, not many of them are highly educated, powerful, or of noble birth. They are a highly gifted but conflict-ridden group who are having lots of trouble putting on Christ and taking off their pagan ways. And in Paul's two letters, we find many examples of them struggling to take off their pagan ways. One member living with his father's wife. Lawsuits between members. And then tensions between the wealthy and the poor when they gather together to share meals and to share the Lord's Supper. Remember, some folks get a head start on the Lord's Supper before everybody has arrived. Now, training a congregation in the ways of Jesus doesn't just happen overnight. It's in Corinth that we finally see Paul really shifting from being a missionary to becoming a pastor. Until now, he's been thrown out of every city that he's visited, either that or told in visions to keep moving. Keep moving. But now in Corinth, of all places, God tells Paul to stay put. His mission is in this city. Verse 10, do not be afraid. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you, for there are many in this city who are my people. And he stays there for 18 months, which for the ever-restless Paul must have seemed like an eternity. And then in our second reading from 2 Corinthians 5, Paul reaffirms and builds on this vision that he received in Corinth and shares it and expands on it with the church in Corinth in this letter. God, he tells them, has entrusted them with the mission of reconciling other people with God. We are ambassadors for Christ, he tells them, since God is making God's appeal through us. God desires to come into a loving relationship with everyone in Corinth for the whole city to find refuge in the shadow of God's wings. 
In other words, the Corinthian church doesn't just exist for itself, but is given an urgent concern for their neighbor's reconciliation with God. They're given the ministry of connecting the people of Corinth with God. That's their ministry and mission. I often tell people that in moving from Chicago here to Lancaster, we have quite counterintuitively come to a place that feels much more urban, much more city than anything we ever experienced out in Chicago's western suburbs. And maybe because of this, ever since I've arrived here, I've felt the Holy Spirit drawing my heart to those Bible scripture passages where God is talking about the city. Jeremiah 29.7 is one of them. Seek the welfare, the shalom of your city. And I have another one, Acts 18.10, taped next to my computer. There are many in this city who are my people. There are many here in Lancaster City who are my people. In these past months, I've often felt the Holy Spirit prompting me to ask, what might this vision mean for us here at East Chestnut? Who might this include in my life and in yours? What colleague, friend, or neighbor? You see, when Jesus was asked about the very purpose of our lives, he started out by talking about loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He said, in other words, it's about being in loving relationship with God. And I take that to mean that if someone is not in relationship with God, they haven't started living yet. I also take this to mean that the most precious gift that we can give to another person is to lovingly help them connect with God so that they can finally start to live. And this work, this holy work of connecting someone with God takes great wisdom, great love and patience, and lots of time. It doesn't mean clobbering them with Bible verses or spiritual laws, but reverently listening to their story and patiently connecting it with God's story of salvation and healing.
in getting to know many of you this past year. I've heard story after story about how East Chestnut has been your church of refuge. This is the place, the community that has helped you connect with God for the very first time or to reconnect with God again after a painful experience in another church. You've also shared with me how much you want East Chestnut to continue helping others in this city connect with God as well, just as you have. And at bottom, isn't this what our conversation about same-sex relationships is all about? It's not about a conversation about who is progressive and who is traditional. It's not a conversation about who is politically correct and who is politically incorrect. And it's certainly not a conversation about what I want or about what you want. At bottom... It's a conversation about a congregation seeking to be faithful to our mission of connecting all people with God and how we can do that. Because we believe that the vision that God gave to Paul for Corinth is the same vision that God has given to us for Lancaster City. There are still many in this city who are my people. Amen.